0: So, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And he turned to the other and said, we don't know how lucky we are. And the Cuban stopped and said, how lucky you are. I had some place to escape to. And in that sentence, he told us the entire story. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. I'm saying that you cannot say that numbers collected at the employer's place of business reflect simply the employer's policies. Those those numbers reflect underlying conditions in the whole society. Just as numbers collected at the hospital do not show you that people are sick because they're in the hospital. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You're tuning in to The Unveiled Patriot with yours truly, Travis Masterbone. And this episode is episode 10 titled the last czar of Russia, and Vladimir Lenin. While the world was industrializing and liberating its citizens and societies, I wanted to zoom in on a specific country that was a tad bit behind, to say the least, Russia. Under their, at the time, feudalistic society, also known as feudalism, is a type of social and political system in which those who are holders of land provide it to tenants in exchange for their loyalty and service. This system wasn't unusually prominent in the medieval times. It's a hierarchy where the monarch is at the very tip top and at the very bottom of the pyramid, we see the serfs. It is a an extremely exploitive system of government, to say the least. And my purpose today is to expand upon this example of a feudalistic society, Russia, and let you be the judge. Well I want you to learn about it, but I also want you to be the judge and See if you can make a connection if we're living in one today in America. But a real quick tangent with that in mind, I came across a different hierarchy on Google, a modern one. And this modern one was titled Feudalism Then and Now, Medieval Feudalism versus Corporate Feudalism. And it basically recaps the traditional pyramid of feudalism with monarchs at the top. Under that, you have landed gentry, clergy, royal ministers, merchants, vassals, and then, of course, at the bottom, serfs, laborers, peasants. They're at the bottom. But then mirrored to the right of this pyramid, we have today the central bankers being those monarchs at the tip top. Right, Central banks, the bankers that operate it or own it, they exist here in the U.S., but they exist in multiple countries all over the world printing currency. Uh, So central bankers or the the central bankers in regards to the Feds, and then you have top bankers such as uh, uh, big bankers, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, right? Under that is corporate elites, Fortune 500s, executives. Then you got the elected officials, Obama and company, top bureaucrats under that. And then you have the normal folk, which is still, you know, top professions, doctors, lawyers. I'd even put entertainers slightly above that. um, The tech rats. And then at the very bottom is normal people such as you and me, I guess. Day-to-day workers, students, they even put in this pyramid soldiers. So I thought to myself, keeping in mind of the percentage of the population, right? The top 0.00001% central bankers and company, they hold the majority of wealth. And according to the U.S. Census and Bureau of Labor Statistics, approximately 98% is everyone else, right? Quote, unquote, everyone else. And so this may be true. But I'm having a tough time wrapping my brain around the idea of having no hierarchical structure at all. Hierarchical structure at all. And as we will come to explore later on in this episode, Vladimir Lenin and the revolution or revolutions, uh... These always seem to be followed by disaster with the same idea in mind of getting rid of this hierarchy. And now with this Google example, I don't fully disagree with the power of the central bankers. I mean, I think there's a lot of miscommunication on where people stand in their beliefs and what we want in society. But to keep it clear, I'm not a fan of central bankers and their ability to loan money to our government, printing from thin air. I will definitely touch base on this topic in another episode in grave detail, but I wanted to just quickly give you my thoughts on this pyramid comparison. And then, in this episode, we will go down the timeline of history. So my critique of this modern feudalistic comparison, there's a few key factors that aren't mentioned and should be noted. And I'm sure there's many more. (laughs) Again, I'm not an expert, but this is just my opinion. I'm sure there's many more, but these in particular stand out to me. With these comparisons in the pyramids, we're not taking a look at the improvements in standards of living. Serfs compared to everyone else today is drastically different, not to mention we have private property. Also, the ability to move up this ladder is drastically different. You know, I just don't, you know, maybe the tippy tippy top, we can get into the intricacies of how exactly they might be holding people down in certain ways or things might be criminal and unjust. There's, all, there's no such thing as a perfect society, but not all people who are business owners or successful are, quote unquote, exploiting those below. This is not a broad blanket that we can just cover The entire generalization, right? And are they only at the top because they were stepping and pushing down on the heads of others on their way up? In a feudalistic society, this is a given. They are oppressing and literally doing that. And I hear it all the time, quote unquote. People don't need a million dollars. They don't need a billion dollars. Whatever. That's your choice if you don't need or you don't believe you need a million dollars. You can choose to take certain routes in this society. You can choose to make a million dollars or a hundred thousand. And you're absolutely right. In this day and age, you can live a very prosperous and happy life without a million dollars, without even half a million dollars. Right? It's all up to choice. Right? You can choose to take certain routes, gain certain knowledge, take certain risks. Right, Risk is the most um, not-mentioned term, and I really think that is the most important thing we have to keep in mind. When people start businesses and decide to go a certain route, we have to take in consideration the risks and what they're putting on the table their ideas, and how they organize it. And you're taking a risk to try and climb that ladder. In this society, in my opinion today, you're not forced and suppressed down at the bottom. But Travis, it's an illusion of freedom. I can understand that on a very deeper philosophical level, sure. Whatever it may be, If I don't really have full free will or not, I literally go wherever I want to go. I move from California to Scottsdale. I do what I want to do. I've changed my profession a few times. I've worked at crap jobs before and worked my way up. I'm doing this podcast by choice. And slowly but surely, I am climbing the ladder up. In my relative view of success and fulfillment, my pursuit of happiness, we have to keep this in mind. And I always keep that value of delayed gratification. And on top of all that, the standards of living today is unarguably better. Your ability to get a car and drive it, have a restroom, even a roof over your head, air conditioning, heating, clothes food right down the street food delivered to your damn door the internet i can go on and on and on of the progress as we the progress that we as a as a society have accomplished and grown from compared to the autocracy of russia for example and pretty much the whole world before america and especially now in america So, however, nowadays we see people in the middle. I see elected officials and bureaucrats overreaching, hindering and literally suppressing people from being able to run their businesses, have mobility in that pyramid and just being able to operate within their freedoms. I see that occurring right now, all in the sake of safety, right? It's always going to be that way. They don't openly come out and say, we're here to oppress you. It's got to be sneaky, especially in this day and age. And we forget that what's occurring right in front of us is much more aligned with that old traditional feudalistic society pyramid than I believe probably prior to 2020. And that is just my thoughts and opinions. Anyways, moving forward back to the timeline. You hear it screamed from the left all the time of the oppression and the evils of our capitalistic society. The quote-unquote gig gig economy, right? Claims of us being a feudal society today. And it really makes me scratch my head. So I wanted to dig deeper and really compare and contrast and take you down my infamous timeline of an actual feudalistic, uh, feudalistic society. And so we got Russia, and this is Russia before the Russian communist revolutions. Um, We will dive into that for sure in this episode. Um, You might have heard of that revolution as the October Revolution, Red October, the Bolshevik coup, the Bolshevik Revolution. We'll transition to all that in the middle towards the end, but let's get to it. The last czar of Russia. It basically means emperor, and this individual was the most powerful monarch, and the last one was Tsar Nicholas II, and he ruled from 1894 to 1917. In 1917, that's when the Russian Revolution took place. While Nicholas II held all the power, the entire Romanov dynasty prior ruled. The serfs broke their backs in all the fields. An extremely difficult time for the working class and peasants within this political organization. Serfs are basically peasants and they were obliged to live on the land of the Tsar and provide labor and shares of produce in exchange for military protection. Quite the exchange. The working class was provided very low pay. There's no mobility. Little, if any, food. No DoorDash. And then under the most terrible and dangerous working conditions you can imagine on a day-to-day basis. Russia was an autocracy if we didn't know by now. A system of government where one person, Nicholas II, those before him, had domineering rule, and absolute power over Russia specifically him and his family prior ruled with an iron fist. So let's backpedal a little bit. Czar Alexander II seceded the Russian throne upon his father's death in 1855. He was emperor until 1881. Amongst many other things, <laughs> Mr. Alexander Although he had many reforms and more liberal big ideas to push Russia forward with the rest of the world, he still wasn't liked too much. Prime example of this or prime example of this was he got blown up in the streets in a carriage of St. Petersburg. Some member of a future revolutionary group called the People's Will threw a bomb in there and blew his ass to bits. This was a group not too fond of the current feudalistic society, the one-man-says-all-and-rules-all society, right? So his death from the explosion, we transition into Alexander III. Now, this is the father of Nicholas II. So Alexander III seceded his father, rightfully so, reigned from 1881 until his death in 1894. Alexander III criticized and felt that his father's liberal reforms to catch Russia up with the rest of the world actually weakened Russia and opposed. He opposed anything that limited the autocratic rule, the current autocratic rule. And of course, his better ideas, well, they started off by repressing religious minorities And you'll find that theme in most of these societies. They always got to get rid of the religion. Because if you get rid of religion, religion, you now have to worship the government instead of God. They also started repressing non-Russians and basically anyone who oppressed, or who opposed, I mean, the autocratic society that Alexander III wanted to preserve. How did he do this? let's identify another common theme and pattern. The secret police that he assembled, the Okrana. They existed for over 30 years, and what they did was, was monitor, censor, and detain any group who was perceived as a threat to their system. You saw this in the French Revolution. Black shirts, Mussolini, brown shirts, Hitler... And this is needed because, I'm sorry, Alexander III isn't going to come force you to do something knocking on your door, right? He has to put together his Gustapo, the Okrana. Under his rule, what also occurred? What occurred to the people? 1891 and 1892, the Russian famine That year caused about 370, approximately 500,000 deaths, starving to death. Sounds like an inefficient system. This was a major incident that really fueled the anger and caused the Russian Revolution shortly after the first one. So something to keep in mind right now as I take a tangent is I'm not quite arguing about having a revolution it was clear feudalistic society was terrible and the people needed something different but it's a matter of the type of revolution and if we listen to my previous episode i believe it's patriotism and noam chomsky i dove into unconstrained versus constrained societies the unconstrained is a tearing down of society and rebuilding the constrained as an example of like the American Revolution. The American Revolution was very different from the French and this Russian Revolution by way of how the Americans really wanted to conserve and preserve their freedoms and their systems of society, not tear it down and rebuild a new one. This is oddly, and I could be wrong, but this is oddly much like what I feel we are experiencing today in a very complex, deceptive manner. I move forward. So, clearly the tyranny, mishandling, and dislike from the population of Russia existed under Alexander III. And upon his death, again, which was in 1894, factoid, this was due to kidney infection, in comes... Nicholas II, the last czar of Russia. About time, right? So again, he was the son of Alexander III. But what was interesting about him, he was never really looked at as a strong leader through the eyes of his father. So upon his death, of course, secession occurs. And what makes Nicholas II so unique is that he was described as a more timid, easily swayed, and drastically ill-equipped individual to rule the Russian Empire, and he admits this himself. And though he doubted his ability, Nicholas II gave it his best shot. So here we go. Right off the bat, to celebrate Nicholas II, his celebration and crowning as an emperor, he throws a free beer and pretzel event, festival, and this was to entice and feed the starving pe- peasants of, the, of Russia and maybe give them some hope that there's going to be some change. This was called the Kodinka Tragedy of 1896. And why is it a tragedy? Because it ended up turning into a giant stampede, killing approximately 1,500 people. Starving peasants, beer and pretzels, clearly a stampede. Then he gets the bad image right off the bat, not just the event himself or itself, but then he took off to France right after, completely not trying to confront or admit that he did something wrong or to try and, uh, you know, take on the tragedy and help out. But now he has the name Nicholas the Bloody. Right, so not a good start for this individual who is already ill-equipped. The people start to really open their eyes. You know, The world, again, around them is advancing, being liberated. And what they're dealing with here is the secret police actively repressing the same terrible conditions of food shortages. You have this event, the dawning of the idea that the czar feudalistic system might need to take a back seat starts to occur. So multiple groups begin to, to form. You know, when you notice systems developing from constitutional monarchies, democracies and republics all over the world, there's obviously different and more potentially effective ways to operate a country. And the Russian people noticed this, but a small group a small growing group, had an even better idea. And this is where Vladimir Lenin comes into play. Vladimir Lenin and communism. Lenin read and loves the German social philosopher Karl Marx. Karl Marx and his book, The Communist Manifesto. This is sitting on my bookshelf right now. I've read it front to back, and I suggest people read it to get a better idea of what exactly Marxism and communism is. And I'll save this for another episode where I get into grave detail on my synopsis of that book and just going into the um, intricacies of that philosophy and ideology. But I move forward. In short, Karl Marx, the Communist Manifesto, was the inspiration for Mr. Lenin to propel forward towards communism and his idea and his small group, the utopian society for Russia via revolution. That's another episode as well to Lenin and friends. Communism promised a world where everything is perfect. The unconstrained vision, right? Everything is perfect. No workers are exploited Not quite the same view as today, obviously, from Noam Chomsky. But back then, versus the czar and the autocracy, I can see how most people can see the optimism and could potentially get behind Lenin and his utopian views. Quote-unquote, the birth of a new man was the ultimate angle he played. And you'll learn about bourgeois proletarians, right? This was specifically targeted to the proletarian, the worker, the oppressed, against the bourgeois, the oppressor, the capitalists, right? Or in this autocracy, those who were oppressing. Communists were not alone in this endeavor. The striking similarities between the communists and Hitler's National Socialism are quite astounding if you study both. And especially when they're propagating the idea of a new man, right? And I have about 20 side-by-side propaganda advertisements um, from both of these machines, and it's truly jaw-dropping how similar they are. They are literally identical. Feel free to message me and I could send them to you. It's fascinating, but they are damn near the same. And somehow, someway, the Nazis got the right-wing label and uh, the communists got the left-wing. But that's why we go back to my spectrum of my definition and my spectrum of right-wing versus left-wing. If you listen to my earlier episodes, it makes a little bit more sense to me. So, where was I? It's jaw-dropping. But we have to keep in mind... The masses in both societies were promised so much and the optimism was evident. But ultimately, they always ended in horrific failures, dictatorship, and historical tragedies. Millions murdered and died of famine. Genocide. Genocide is an extremely interesting phenomenon to me and sticking to the Leninism and Marxism topics. Here's a quote from Karl Marx. Karl Marx, quote, the classes and the races too weak to master the new conditions of life must give way. They must perish in the revolutionary Holocaust, end quote. Karl Marx and his Robin Friedrich Engels could be considered as the originators of purposeful genocide, all in the name of the greater good of society as a whole. The ends justify the means. This was further perpetuated by Lenin, Hitler, Mao, Fidel Castro, I will go off. But essentially, there was always some common theme of killing off quote-unquote parasites Vermin. I draw that connection a little bit today when people call individuals who voted for Trump maggots. (laughs) And the unvaccinated, the polarizing, these are the people. I just find these little correlations here and there, but I move forward. But killing off parasites, essentially, according to Marx, Lenin, Plenty of quotes, Stalin. We'll get into him later as well. This was what Marxism and socialism was all about, and they would even say that they're socialists. That's always the case, right? So it makes you wonder. And it's just crazy that the world just watched these millions of death, these millions of deaths unfold. They either watched or they were fooled by the propaganda. And then there were still hundreds of thousands that supported this ideology, either knowingly or unknowingly. They all accepted in this notion and ideology. Mass psychosis is also another interesting phenomenon. And it's just insane like to be under that spell that if the enemy does not give up, he must be exterminated. I mean, this is the epitome of us versus them ideology and again i see similarities today the dehumanizing the polarizing and my question is how far does it go what lines need to be crossed for you to say hey don't cross that line but then you get deemed an alarmist it is a brave move to do that because you could be wrong but at the end of the day again who is qualified to be that alarmist and if so When are you going to do it? Who, like, it makes no sense to me in that sense because it'll end up being too late when it gets to that extreme point. I don't think we're there yet, but we are really getting in an area where those similarities are becoming more and more vivid in this day and age. So back to my timeline. 1898, we have the formation of the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party my goodness. That sounds great. This was a revolutionary socialist political party that formed with the intent to unite various revolutionary organizations into one party against the Russian Empire. Sounds great. Get everyone together. Let's take care of this feudalistic society. However, in 1912, this party split. Why did they split? Vladimir Lenin. He had a one track mind and an uncompromising view of the communist ideology. And this essentially caused the split. People had their concerns of him, Lenin himself, becoming a dictator. Go figure. So the split was between the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks. The Mensheviks means the minority, which is ironic because they were actually the the real majority, and they were less radical. The Bolsheviks, which meant the majority, but they were actually the minority, they were more radical and under Lenin. And this later becomes the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, the Bolsheviks. So, essentially, these guys, in this time during all these formations of groups, we have to keep in mind, we still had the Okhrana, the Oppressive Society of the Tsar, and essentially, long story short, The Bolsheviks get exiled. Lenin gets exiled. Because you can't worship and believe anything other than the Russian autocracy. See you later. So we will revisit Lenin and friends later on, but it's important to note that once I get into these next events, Lenin and the Bolsheviks were not a part of it on the first stages of revolution. They were exiled. So I wanted to introduce a very prominent figure his name is Sergei Witt or Witty. Correct me if I'm wrong, sorry. 1905, he was appointed the first chairman of the Russian Council of Ministers. And this is essentially the first prime minister of Russia. And he was an influential advisor to Nicholas II, known as the perpetuator of industrializing Russia. He had the brilliant idea of building factories, textiles, and catching up to the rest of the world that's advancing around him, around them, and he did. However, this transitioned into terrible working conditions, poor long hours, low, rate, uh, low wages, terrible sleeping conditions, and much, much worse. And so, this working class started to strike in mass. People were unhappy still. From serfs to the liberals even. You name it. And of course, during all this um, backlash, Nicholas II, like all tyrants, they love to resort to war as a distraction, as to kind of you know, blanket their flaws and manipulate and just show it through patriotism, nationalism, right? They go to war. Minus the details, they end up going to a war with Japan. And it's like, we can't take care of the stuff at home. Let's go to a war out there. And then they end up losing. So just add that to the list of issues and humiliation for Nicholas II and Russia. And so with all of this brewing, this is where the verge of the First Revolution comes so close Is so close that the people could taste it. All you need is just seriously one event to ignite this process. And sure enough, that one event did occur. Bloody Sunday. Bloody Sunday, also known as Red Sunday. January 22nd, 1905. This was the day where... A peaceful protest took place led by a very popular priest, Father Georgie Gapon, and many other protesters. All protested unarmed, nonviolent, signed a petition, and tried to deliver it to Nicholas II for better working conditions, hours, limitations of centralized power, peaceful protests, this turned into that tragedy needed. Imperial soldiers opened fire on the crowd. Approximately 200 killed. Innocent. This makes me really, really believe that in, this, in America today, the, the right and the ability to protest freedom of speech is so important. They just wanted things to change and get better. So although Nicholas II didn't order the massacre, speculation, he was held responsible, of course. And so the 1905 First Revolution began, begun, and this led, this was successful to an extent. It led to a lot of political and social unrest, workers' strikes, peasants seizing land and murdering people, military mutinies, I mean, it was a lot of chaos, but essentially this did end up in some type of change. And so Sergey again comes through and he wrote a manifesto that would give the liberals specifically an elected assembly building. It was called the State Duma. And this basically was just giving them some more power, the autocratic side, a little less power, allowing the liberals to approve or deny laws that were set by Nicholas II. This was a big, big step in lessening that feudalistic society. But, of course, liberals were satisfied, but the workers and peasants still were not. And it's just a shame because, although this state duma went through, workers and peasants back in their places, killed. When the armies returned from war from Japan... Nicholas II basically tore up that manifesto, wrote new laws, and is back to business as usual. What do tyrants do? So he literally, long story short, skated by that first revolution. And so the revolution did not include Lenin and the Bolsheviks, thanks to the exile, remember? So during this slight bump Um, once they got out of the war, there was a slight bump in prosperity within Russia. There was the establishment of the multi-party system and the Russian Constitution of 1906. With these improvements in the economy slightly, it was difficult to plan a revolution from the Bolsheviks and Lenin's eyes. Right? And so even though the czar was back to business as usual, things improved when they got out of the war from Japan. And so Lenin needed some help. He still wanted to push his ideology. And so I introduce you to Joseph Stalin. Lenin and Stalin met at a communist convention, go figure. And with Lenin... He lacked the funds to be able to make moves that he wanted to make. Stalin was a talented man of fundraising, ethically, of course, robbing, stealing, murdering. He was essentially a gangster. And they became a great match. Stalin joined the Bolsheviks in a major way. But still, with Stalin on the team and the economic circumstances weren't really playing into his favor for his utopian revolt, New events had to occur. And sure enough, new events did occur. And so this is where 1914, World War I. Remember Archduke Franz Ferdinand, his assassination? Well, this led Russia back into war with half of Europe. Millions of soldiers killed and millions more with Stalin. Patriotism swept through Russia, though. But Lenin and the Bolsheviks wanted Russia to lose. This was the event, the window, the communist opportunity window, that Lenin and the Bolsheviks missed thanks to their exile in 1905. But World War I left Russia just absolutely torn, broke, hungry, exhausted. And I sound like a broken record, but they are absolutely tired of Nicholas II. Revolution is on the brink again. Hunger strikes, anti-war protests, anti-autocracy protests, and things were escalating quickly again. Mass chaos. Russia was essentially out of control, and the call for Nicholas II to be abdicated was occurring tenfold beyond that. And sure enough, the last Tsar of Russia step down. And so, during this step down, who would replace him? No one significant. So, 300 years of autocratic rule came to an end in 1917 with the removal of the Tsar Nicholas II. With the Okhrana pol- uh, secret police being dismantled, the death penalty got removed. They finally implemented elections. And all along the lines with the content new system of government that I mentioned earlier, the Constitution, progress was being made. Not perfect whatsoever, but there was political things occurring during the midst of chaos. Tensions were still high. And all it needed was a slight disruption, and this progress could have easily been deterred. So with that segue, finally, in comes the Bolsheviks and Lenin's revolution. I wanted to define a demagogue. A demagogue is a political leader who seeks support by appealing to the desires and prejudices of the ordinary people. Opposed, rational argument, you see plenty of those today And I would keep your eyebrows raised on what a demagogue is today. But the Bolsheviks were definitely demagogues at the time with their fancy new slogan aimed at and for the people, the proletarians, quote, peace, land, bread, peace, land and bread. Promise, promise, promise. No war. Here's your land. Here's your food. This is what they ran off of. The Bolsheviks became more and more popular, right? The new provisional government that was in place with that slight progress I mentioned earlier just after post-abdication of Nicholas II, it only lasted for about nine months. And with the war still at bay, same issues were still being unsolved and people were still very unhappy. Right? It almost seemed after that nine months that the Tsar never really left. And so what really set it off was July 1917. They call it the, Jul- the July days. And this was literally the worst violence and destruction in the city of Petrograd by the people and armed workers of Russia, destroying everything troops sent to counter it. These marches and mayhem. They were all chanting Bolshevik slogans with clear support for Lenin and communism. Their popularity did skyrocket, and this led to the coup d'etat. Fueled by propaganda, it was a quote-unquote violent, heroic, and glorious takeover. They stormed the Winter Palace, and Lenin was in charge setting up the first council for the people's commissioners, and still allowed elections, peace, land, and bread, it sounds great, right? It always does. Until it doesn't fit certain agendas. Well, the 1917 Russian Constituent Assembly election was held. And unfortunately, although they were growing in popularity and they did the coup d'etat, it wasn't won by the Bolsheviks. It was won by a separate party, the Social Revolutionaries, which was just simply a separate, a separate branch. Point being, Lenin claimed that it was unfair and counter-revolutionary, quote-unquote counter-revolutionary, keep that in mind, against his cause. Now he starts behaving as a dictator, cracking down on opposition, opening fire on protesters, a police force set up again against traitors. A.K.A. people who are against the perceived, like, the, who are against me, a perceived threat, counter-revolutionaries. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? You see the pattern, you catch the drift, and guess what? War was still going on. Germany is taking over more and more land, closer to the capital of Petrograd. Factoid, Lenin moves the capital to Moscow from Petrograd. And it's just broken record. Russia, again, humiliated. People, again, pissed. They want to unite against the Bolsheviks now. Similar to Nicholas II, right? You get the idea. So in comes civil war. Russian Civil War, 1917 to 1923. Anti-Bolsheviks. They were called the White Army. The Bolsheviks were the Red Army. A brutal conflict. Horrendous atrocities from both sides. It's never clean. And then the Red Army was just much more organized, much more resources and military capabilities. They won the war. And they had to be desperate to maintain order at home. With the Civil War and Germany closing in, in comes the events of the Red terror, the Bolsheviks and their secret police would execute tens of thousands Potential. of potential traitors, quote-unquote traitors, counter-revolutionaries. It really is remarkable when you dig into the details of it all. So what happened to Nicholas II? <laughs> Tangent. Well, rumor has it that the Bolsheviks held him and his family captive throughout this entire time period. And they were concerned that the White Army would reach him, free him, and maybe implement him onto their side. Um, But he and his family, that's the picture in my slide from my post and my YouTube post. They're on the left, him and his family. They were murdered in a basement of the home that they were being held captive in. And not clear if it's Lenin's orders or the soldiers just murdered them by their own means, but no one really knows for sure. That is the true last ending of Nicholas II, the last Tsar of Russia. Moving forward, post Civil War, Bolsheviks victorious, back to the communist utopia. Oh, did I forget to mention that the Civil War helped create a massive famine? Approximately 5 million people starved to death. Disease and epidemics killed about 3 million. Massive inflation. Railway tracks being destroyed. Populations in Petrograd and Moscow collapsing. Life expectancy dropped dramatically. People freezing to death in their own apartments. I'll tell you this much. The life for the Russian people was sad and tragic, and I could only imagine. It was nothing more than a constant scavenge for food and search for shelter. But hey, in 1922, the declaration of the creation of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics occurred. The USSR. And Lenin's health started to plummet. After being shot from attempted assassination, two strokes, and all the stress of all the shit that I've been rattling off today, with his death near, someone had to take charge. Someone that I haven't really name-dropped much in all of this historical timeline context. Leon Trotsky, he played a major part in winning these wars for Lenin. And he seemed like the guy who was strong enough and smart enough to take the reins. And it seemed like a a shoe-in. However, remember that guy, Joseph Stalin? Yeah. Yeah. He pulled it off instead. Very unexpectedly, but he did it in a very strategic way as well. And so my next episode, I really intend to continue this timeline as we dive into the, the details outlining and highlighting how Stalin ended up taking the reins after Lenin. And expand upon the consequences and the continued shit show that follows. The quote unquote man of steel, Joseph Stalin, one of the most famous tyrants and dictators throughout human history. So as I close, what is the takeaways of all this? Well, Lenin's intentions, I believe, and what people historically note, believe, is that he was genuine. There was obviously a need to get rid of this feudalistic society. But there was also the clear, (laughs) obvious truth that he was just cruel and he will go down in history as one of the most vicious dictators known to man. And sure, we can make the case, it seemed that he wanted what, what was best for the people of Russia. It always sounds that way. To be done with the autocracy. To develop his communist utopia. Divide everything up equally equal for everything, all the land, peace, this, that, and the third. (laughs) He never got to see it, unfortunately. Dealing with the wars and collapse of the Russian economy on multiple levels, he was without a doubt evil and responsible for millions of deaths. Even if someone has the best intentions, it is... To highlight that here we have a prime example of people with the best intentions who end up being the most brutal tyrants. And we see this over and over again. Implementing systems and ideologies that just don't work. I choose to veer away from that as much as possible. But yet to this day we will still, somehow, some way, preach similar or damn near the same ideologies and policies today and they predominantly come from the left and centralizing power. I suggest to deliberately read and try to comprehend history. Do your best, as I do mine, to connect the dots to today's politicians and policies, and you'll start to recognize who the demagogues are and unveil which systems work best for our society and have worked best here at home. I don't believe whatsoever that we are the same medieval feudalistic society, and I have no intention of implementing policies that even remotely resemble these Leninism revolutionary strategies and rhetoric. Again, broken record. Intentional, unintentional, it doesn't matter to me. To be continued. So please... Like, share, subscribe and follow all that shit. Thank you again from the bottom of my heart for listening to The Unveiled Patriot with me, Travis Masterbone. And I look forward to you tuning in next time. Farewell.